78644 is brought to you by Texas Hatters, Wella Foods, Thunderbird Bars, The Little Alamo Airbnb, Two Wishes Ranch Event, and Birdie House Airbnb. Outside Lockhart's Texas Hatters is a sign that says, There ain't no place like this place, anywhere near this place, so this must be the place. And that certainly is true. To quote Lewis Carroll, Lockhart grows curiouser and more curiouser with each year. What once was a slow, sleepy town known for slowly smoked meats is now starting to hum with activity, music, and events. But it's not like this phenomenon is completely new. I've been here long enough to tell you that the potential was always there. The square has always had festivals going on, and I've woken up many a time to the sound of music and commotion going on down there, including a Formula One-style go-kart racing event that uh, flew past the intersection near the house. There was already a willingness to be a bit unconventional, a spirit to put on festivals and a sense of uh, adventure. So it makes sense that artists would come to Lockhart because, well, this must be the place. I'm Stephen Collins, and this is 78644. cement city of Arlington, raised off the back roads of Roanoke, Texas. Daddy always kept moving, so she did too. The youngest of four children, Bear Ryan didn't grow up with music lessons. She had her mother's Beach Boys and Elvis vinyl, her father's John Denver and Frank Sinatra 8-tracks, and her sister's Quiet Riot tapes and her brother's Zeppelin records. Ever the old soul, she got her hands on Stand By Me, the movie soundtrack, and man oh man, Shirley Lee's growl. Jerry Lee Lewis's energy and a crony Buddy Holly and the swoony Bobettes. She sang along with them. Then, in her teens, it was Led Zeppelin and the Stones, Run DMC and the Beastie Boys, the Grateful Dead, Jillian Welsh, Lucinda Williams, and then she found Howlin' Wolf, John Lee Hooker, Muddy Waters, T-Bone Walker, Big Mama Thornton, Etta James, and the Hollywood Fats. And that's what started it all. Bear Ryan came in to visit with us in the studio, talk about her work, and perform for us. You were in Austin for like 25 years mm-hmm. and then made the, the move to Luling. What prompted that? Well, the pandemic and money and all the stuff, you know, Austin got expensive, so kind of had to make moves. Um, I'm, I'm a barber by day, so sort of both of my sources of income dried up that year. But it was also, oh, it's been a wonderful decision. Um, I had a really good run in Austin kind of the heyday, uh, got here in 95. Um, but I was fortunate enough, um, my boyfriend lives in Luling. And so he said, come down here, you know? So, um, it's been great. And it's, uh, nice to be close to Lockhart too. Now that this, uh, musical renaissance is happening and, and Lockhart is awesome. It's kind of odd. Yeah, that it yeah. is, but it is. <laughs> yeah. Cause back in the day I had, I had one friend who was a musician. His name was Brant Leeper. He's a keys player, lived in Lockhart. And we were all like, what are you doing, man? That's a long drive. <laughs> Everybody used to say that to me too. Yeah. Like, Why do you live out there? I'm like, th- well, I have a good diner and I have a mechanic that's on it. That's all you need. But yeah. back then we thought that was so square. And now it's like, to me, like Lockhart's like the close town to Austin. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's like South, South Austin. Now. Yes. But, but it's still retaining its Lockhart soul. I, think. I hope so. Yeah. That's what we're hoping for. Yeah. yeah. 
you've been playing these custom-made guitars. Can you talk a little bit about your, not only the the, the instrument, yeah. but uh, how your style has evolved around it? Absolutely. Um, so, I mean, when I was really young, at almost a bizarrely young age, um, I started listening to um, pretty old school blues. Um, accidentally, found it on the radio. They had a KZPS had a special on the Howlin' Wolf, and I was, you know, I used to sit with the tape in the tape deck, ready to record what was on the radio. And uh, I heard that voice and press record. It was the best thing I'd ever heard in my life. And uh, they were doing like some kind of half hour special on the Howlin' Wolf and spent the next two weeks like begging my mom to drive me to the mall back in the day when you had to go to the mall to get music. And uh, I found one tape because <laughs> even Howlin' Wolf was like probably super niche back then. And it was like his greatest hits. And I listened to that on repeat for probably like a few years because it's not like I could go on the internet and find music. But then I went down the kind of rabbit hole of uh, John Lee Hooker, B.B. King, Muddy Waters. And it wasn't until um, like literally in my 20s that I guess maybe around then the Black Keys were getting popular. And I was the last to know about them. A friend of mine pulled out some vinyl and was like, check these guys out. I was like, oh my God, because it was more modern. I loved it. And uh, that took me toward... R.L. Burnside and Junior Kimbrough. And when I found Hill Country Delta Blues, I just fell in love. I like their droning style. I like how they hang on a groove forever, forever. Uh, but And now I go out and play in Mississippi because I go to where it makes sense. But um, my musical journey is weird. I didn't sing in front of another person until I was 35 years old. I was shy about it. So um, then the trajectory kind of went crazy. I was in a duo and then a five-piece rock and roll band. But as a result of the pandemic, you know, all things came to a grinding halt. I found myself kind of sitting alone in a house in Luling and no band to write with, and I didn't play an instrument. So I uh, picked up the guitar and started writing new material, and, but learning as I was writing. So it was a bumpy road. But I kind of just felt like I love acoustic music. I listened to it a ton, like Gillian Welch, one of my biggest heroes, and Dave Rawlings. But it wasn't grimy enough for me. And uh, I just lucked out. A buddy of mine happens to make cigar box guitars, and he knew I was messing around with guitar, and he handed it to me. He said, plug that into an amp, run it through some distortion pedals, see what you think. And that was it. But they're all tuned to unique key, and they don't like being tuned back and forth, so I needed a lot of them, and I'm left-handed. So my boyfriend, thank goodness, is a builder and a brilliant one, and uh he said, well, I'm just going to make you one in every key. <laughs> now I think I got two in every key, you know. Uh, so, so can you describe what they are? For yeah, them? so they are cigar. They're literally made out of cigar boxes. And there's been a learning curve of realizing that not all cigar boxes are made equally. Um, now we know the heavier the wood, the better, better tone. And he hand makes the necks, but he puts, because they have to stand up to stage performance, um, they can't be toys. Um, he puts real guitar parts in them. So if he were here, he'd be like, that one has the period correct wiring of a Les Paul, blah, blah, blah. You know, he understands it better than I do. Um, but they just, uh, they all have really unique tones and I kind of write the song to the tone. That's in- that's cool. I, yeah. I, I've always been attracted to the, to the drone too. Yeah. I, I think there's something sort of, transcendent about it yeah i feel like i'm often meditating when i'm writing a song yeah yeah and it's it's uh i don't know what it is but yeah i think it is that it's just like it's like a mantra in a way but it's Mm -hmm. the blues does it in a way that's it's like if there was a circle it would meet right in the middle with like the middle eastern spiritual music yeah yeah (laughs) well i think there's something primal like literally heartbeat about it which kind of 
points to why I was probably drawn uh, drawn to it as well. Um, I did begin playing when I started my musical journey. I played drums and sang, and um, I've had people walk up to me and say, "You play guitar like a drummer." And I don't know if they meant it as a compliment, but I took it as a compliment. But that's that droning beat, and uh, and then you know. Ryan plays, my, my boyfriend Ryan plays gigs with me and he adds the flavor with guitar. Um, and to me with Delta Blues, that's kind of the magic. Usually somebody's droning and then somebody's playing, you know, some riffs and it's just cool. I think there's a universality to the human condition in the blues. You can literally hear it even in the music when you take away the lyrics. You know, my heroes are just all these mostly dead <laughs> blues musicians from the Delta. And so many of them are quoted and I'll, I'll misquote them, but so many of them are just like, man, a flat tire will give you the blues, you know, your woman leaving you, you know, that's the classic one. Um, but uh, yeah, there's just something universal that I think people, res it resonates with people. It does. It's, um, Justin Welsh and I were working together a while back and yeah. we had done this song that was a drone song mm -hmm. and we put in, it started with the with this kind of blues type of song, and then it uh, was so Appalachian in a way. And then we brought in a singer from Iran, and he did the cool. solo, and it kind of yes. And then then we ended it with like a Sacred Harp type of yes thing. So you had all these spiritual types of music. I love and they're it. Doing the same thing where like you're just getting like it's the closest sound to feared mm -hmm. have you noticed that yeah which absolutely. is crazy you know yeah like it'll be like man this is kind of spooky yeah but yeah. it's not spooky because there's a monster coming at you it's spooky from something else and realness i think maybe. yeah maybe that's it yeah but usually hopefully on the other side of that fear is something really beautiful you know or a release of some sort but yeah fear it's weird fear is a good word for it yeah yeah but it does that that gives you that same chill yeah you know, There's when an it's done, with the way it. you play it, it I, I can feel that in there. And I'm like, thank you. To me, that's a sign of like, okay, this person has their pulse on it. Yeah. And yeah. it's like a conjure in a way. We're going to conjure something it's up. what it feels like. Yep. And um, it's fascinating. It's never, because it's like, we're, we're talking about a drone. Yeah. And yet that, that does something that machines have a real hard time right. understanding. Right. Well, yeah. and it's, I mean, for me, because I'm self-taught and I'm so new at guitar, the drone is kind of the the simplest thing, but it's the undercurrent. It's the to me, it's the most important thing. You can layer all kinds of stuff on top of it that makes it magical. But um, if you strip it all the way down back to the drone, you're you're good to go. You know. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah. it's a discipline of sorts. It's funny. Um, a lot of people use words like swampy, eerie, conjuring when they describe my music, and uh, I take it as a compliment. But I don't, like, I don't sit down to write a song and think, like, I'm going to write something swampy, you know. Uh, it definitely comes from decades of listening to stuff like that, you know. It's just in me. And you're writing next to a river and it's really hot. Yes. <laughs> I, I feel like I'm in a swamp down in Luling. Even Luling is more humid than this place. <laughs> yeah, so it's authentico. <laughs> yeah, so you have the environment. No, yeah. no, I know what you mean. I didn't need to cut you off. No, like, no, yeah. Um yeah, so I mean, if I lived in a, a Nordic place, my my sound would be different. You know, our yeah. our environments definitely influence us. But but writing is also a very spiritual thing for me. I'm not a very religious person, but um, I feel like uh, well, I know that things channel through me. So the fact that you know the word conjuring without the um, negative connotation to that is is absolutely no. It's true. It's like a, there's like a you know 
the, the old prophet kind of thing. You know, that's yeah, that's what the bluesmen were were doing. They were yeah, the street prophet. That's like when Paul Simon wrote that word and you know, wrote mm-hmm. that lyric that the mm-hmm. words of the prophets are over here. They're just talking about the channeling of the idea mm-hmm. of there's there's a truth of humanity that's universal and it's not exactly comfortable. Right. Yes. But, <laughs> but to identify it makes you feel connected, right? Yes. I think if if anyone can just if they connect with one of my songs. And one thing I love about creativity and songwriting is that I'm a big believer that once you put a song out into the world, it's kind of no longer your own um, because everybody brings their own interpretation and life experience to it. But I love that. And I love when someone thinks that my song is about something completely different than what I had in mind. But maybe there's like one nugget of that human condition universality. Um, But if it just resonates with someone and they're like, that song does this for me, then I'm done. I'm so happy. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Well, I know you just recorded something new. Mm -hmm. Um, Is that coming out soon? I actually don't have an answer to that. It's a unique situation. I was um, contacted by uh, Matt Parmenter and Brett Serrell over at um, Ice Cream Factory Studio. They are doing a cool thing where every month they take one day, I think, of the month and they record a local musician. They're going to put out a compilation at the end of the year. Oh, cool. So the song will be on the compilation. But that leads me to believe, I haven't gotten clarification, that it I'll probably have to wait until next year to release the song. Okay. Um, I like that idea. That's a great idea. Yeah. And I got exposed to a studio I didn't know about. They got exposed. We've all like already found so many mutual musicians and people. It's really cool. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. And then you were telling me you've got this thing coming up with um, Holly Anna and Melissa Engelman. Yeah. Who else was on? And Heather Bishop. Heather Bishop. Um, Yeah. So we've started um, basically just kind of a musicians in the round. It's the four of us. We do a song swap and we're all just similar enough that we make sense on stage together, but also like widely different. So it's kind of cool. The audiences have really responded well to it because there's something for everybody in there. And we are playing Lockhart Arts and Crafts on September 23rd. So all four of us will be there for a song swap. The the song Old Guard is, it's kind of a song about um, people's negativity toward the younger generation, which I think is sort of the prerogative of all generations. I think if you look back, the older generation is always put out by the younger generation. I don't share that view. I think it's good to stay positive about younger people. Um, And so the song is sort of about like, evaluating who's making the rules for you. The alleged like legion of decency who's making the rules. If you look at their day-to-day behaviors aren't necessarily always very respectful. So it's kind of about a guy who's not the greatest dude who's kind of saying, don't do what I do, do what I say. Then the first song I played, uh, uh, Dead Man's Shoes, is about um, a person struggling with mental health because they have like psychic abilities and they're kind of button heads with religious dogma. But there is a shout out in that song to my grandfather. He was an Irish immigrant and um, raised 14 children by himself because my grandmother passed away. And uh, then he adopted his two nephews. So he raised 16 kids by himself. Legend has it that he went to the local um, Irish funerals to get the dead man's shoes for his kids, for the boys. I found out that it's a true story. I played the song for my cousin who's about 20 years older than me and she was crying and she said it's true she said he was going blind and I would have to drive him to the funeral parlor and he was friends with the 
the funeral guy. And he would give my grandfather, Anthony Walsh, the dead man's shoes for his sons. So there's a shout out to him in there. It's crazy, right? <laughs> it's a different time. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that's, hey, grandpa, that was a pretty rock and roll. Yeah, man, that's, that's, that's deep. Man. Yeah, it's very deep. Yeah, man. That's, and he was a, a poet and performer, so the whole song's kind of Even uh, up until him. the end, he's like, I'm going to drive you down. Man. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm going to give you the dead man's shoes. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah. Great stories, Bear. Thank you so much.
Nostalgic Rags was started by Katie and Jeff Hammett due to the passion that they both share for things that are old, such as their 1953 Mercury Monterey mild custom cars they have, their grandparents' antique furniture that they grew up with, and music of the past. And they were both drawn to the quality of simplicity of a time that has come and gone. Now Jeff has moved Nostalgic Rags to Lockhart, and uh, is planning to have a grand opening soon. Jeff uh, came into the studio to talk about uh, his story and the shop and the grand opening. Five years ago, uh, my wife actually passed away from a stroke and a brain aneurysm. We had a home that had gone up at quite a bit in value, and and uh, as I was grieving, I was trying to figure out where I wanted to move. And when I did my research, uh, it led me to Lockhart. The home that we had, we had a lot of equity, equity in it, and I wanted to pay cash for a home, and so we ended up here. Pretty much rebooted our whole life, and I guess you would say started over. And man, Lockhart has been just a godsend overall. The people are outstanding, very open. Doesn't matter your sexuality, your color. It, you know, it doesn't matter here. I think a small town like this, you need everybody to, to make it happen. And so I'm totally stoked to be here. We're glad to have you. So you felt like in your, your research that Lockhart uh, made sense for, for buying of the house and also the culture? Yeah, totally. And even the architecture. I mean, that was another thing that drew me in, in the town square. Not ever living in a small town like this, I didn't really realize what the square meant until I got here. And then I was like, oh, man, the square runs this place. It's been a godsend, and to be able to put a little store in is such a blessing. Yeah, well, let's talk about the store. Um, well, it's called Nostalgic. Nostalgic. Okay. Yeah, and uh, so Nostalgic Rags, we started in 2016, Katie and I, and we had a lot of friends that own you know, some pretty nice businesses in Austin, uh, like the Continental Club with Wertheimer and Mike Young over at Chewy's and, and Shady Grove, you know, on and on and on. And uh, being in Steve Wertheimer's Hot Rod Club, it made sense to approach him first. And so I did and sold him on the idea of licensing his intellectual property. And once Steve came on board, it, it got a little bit easier to get other folks on board as well, like Matt Lucky at Lucky Lounge and, and uh, Mean-Eyed Cat and all that. So yeah, we just started uh, licensing intellectual property and then making tees, hats, stickers, and patches and whatnot and selling it to the gift trade in Austin. We do some incense. We're going to do candles. We're trying to get more into the gift trade as well so people will see us as a gift shop and they can come in our shop and buy a gift uh, whether they're a tourist or a local it doesn't really matter another aspect of the business is that we build custom product okay uh, yeah. we have our own industrial sewing machine and we lay down a lot of patches on hats we do a lot of uh, uh, silk screening you know patches stickers koozies anything you want we do that as another sideliner aspect of the business. Okay, so you also make merchandise for other people. All day well. long, yeah. Okay. We 
I used to uh, build all of Bucky's private label hats. Oh, wow. To give you a point of reference. Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot of product. Yeah. And then we've done stuff, you know, for load off fannies, Lupin Lil's, Old Pal. So we've, we've built a lot of product already in, in Lockhart. Yeah. That's great. Custom for folks. So I think we've got a lot of iconic, legendary Austin uh, intellectual property and product. Now we're focused more on Texas centric. So it's a broader base that we can target. Great. Yeah. And then we want to back into the local homegrown with the, the Lockhart centric product. That's cool. Yeah. So it's, it's multifaceted in our approach. To, I, I, to, I like the fact that you're doing, you know, licensing these things and then putting them out there for people to, to yeah. wear and promote. Cause it still promotes those places, even if they're Oh, gone. totally. I think the cat's been gone for a long time now, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, this is mean eyed cat. Right. The mean eyed cat. Yeah. Right. Mean eyed cat. And is it still there? It is. It is. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Johnny Cash tribute bar. Exactly. And it's, it's a top seller. Continental club is a top seller. Those are both legendary, iconic, you know, properties. And do you have a horseshoe lounge. I do have a horseshoe lounge. <laughs> that was the other hang. Man. <laughs> yeah. Broken spoke is in there. Yeah. Uh, we've got pooties, top notch burgers, Dell Watson, junior Brown. So we kind of mixed bag there, but all very powerful brands. And the neat thing for me is and the blessing is that I get to give back to people that I appreciate and respect. And uh, the way we do that is um, they get more marketing with people wearing their brand, um, and then we pay a royalty. Right. And it's just fun to cut a check to someone like Steve Wertheimer or Dale Watson. I Absolutely. Mean, They've done so much. Yeah. And I've been friends with them forever, and it's just it's the coolest thing ever, yeah. for sure. That's that, I love to hear that. What a great idea, you know, and we're glad that you're doing it here in Lockhart. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the grand opening, um, Jeff, because it sounds like it's going to be quite a party, you know. Yeah. It's not just going to be a merchandise retail shop. It also has a gallery space, right? Yeah, the, the landlord uh, gave me the opportunity to build out the back space, which was kind of a rickety old space, sweaty, humid, all that. And we've worked hard at it and dried it in and... Uh, we're uh, painting it stark white and it'll have track lighting and it'll be the real deal. And we're trying to do art that's a little maybe lowbrow, uh, alternatives, you know, not saying it wouldn't be uh, fine art, but the, the first artist is uh, Hamilton and uh, he does wood cutouts and he's bringing, I think, about 21 pieces of art. It could be a pinup girl, you know, that style of art and probably pretty affordable. Small pieces, maybe 50 bucks, up to, I don't know, maybe 500 bucks. Yeah. But it, it'll be pretty cool, and that'll he'll run for a while. We might use the space for a, maybe a tattooer to put their flash on the wall and do an activation where they're actually tattooing uh, on a Saturday, that kind of thing. We might have 1975 Chain Stitch come in and do her thing. Right, uh, so almost a performance area too. Yeah, it could be a small band. I mean, we can yeah. use it for so many different uh, ways. On the grand opening, to get back to that, um, Hamilton's going to be there. He's going to be the featured artist. We're going to open at 11. He'll be featured till 8 at night. And then at uh, 9 o'clock, he's going to play across the street at Eddie's Wood Shop. We're going to roll up the big uh, roll-up door. Uh, have it quadrant on, off in there, and then uh, his band, uh, the Go Go Rillas, are going to play, which is very much uh, garage rock, surf oriented uh, music. Yeah, and it's fascinating too because 
so many people want to know what's inside Eddie's woodshop. <laughs> <laughs> I hear it all the time. It's and like, I, I've had the luxury. He's taken me on a tour and we become fast friends. I mean, he's a, he's a master carpenter. Yeah. I mean, he's, he can build any cabinets or anything you want. And he's a, he's just a real cool, is, cool yeah. dude. Yeah. He's done some work like, you know, building antique balusters, stuff like that. He's yeah. one of the guys that can do it. He has the lathe. And so, yeah, but it's, his shop's always been like, I wonder what he's doing in there. You yeah. Know, I feel like Tom yeah, Waits lives in there. It's <laughs> a big, big space and we'll see what the sounds like. I'm not sure what it's going to sound like, how it's going to. For I think for for what Hamilton's doing with the Go Go Gorillas, yeah, or the Go Gorillas, we've been talking. about, How do you pronounce it? Then, Something like that. And uh, when the Go Go Gorillas uh, are playing, like that's surf rock, so I think it's supposed to be in an environment that's more like Eddie's Woodshop. Yeah, you know, I think it'll be great, and oh, we're going to cap it off after that. DJ Island Time is going to DJ from ten to midnight, oh, just man. a little after party, and that should bring in a good day and. We're gonna start the day uh, at 11, but at one, we're gonna have the ribbon cutting with uh, both chambers uh, okay. of commerce here, which will be cool just to make it official. And, you know, we've been open for a while. We had a super soft and then a soft opening, and we're just bringing it full circle because uh, the gallery has been added, and we just wanna, you know, uh, show the market what we have and have sure. a good time. Hope everybody can make it out for the grand opening. Let's have a rockin' banana party with the go-go sounds of the go-go Christy Stellop is an artist who's living in Austin, Texas, born and raised in El Paso. Her work is greatly influenced by the West. Her subjects range from local landscapes to whimsical grackles that border on the absurd. Influenced by design and balance, her work often shifts perspective into unique directions. Christy's primary focus is creating work that delights and elevates the mood of the viewer. Christy stopped by the studio to discuss her upcoming show at Commerce Gallery. And uh, we had a really good talk. Where's home for you? Home is Austin, but I'm originally from El Paso. Okay. So that's still very home to me. All my family lives there. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, but been in Austin for a little bit? Of- 26 years. Okay, so a little bit of time. For this yeah. time. I've had time here prior to as well. You've got a new show, right? Is this new work that you're showing at Commerce? Complete new body of work, yes, at Commerce Gallery. And is it... From what I can tell, is this the one that deals with grackles, with that kind of thing, or is it more landscapes? I, I'm not sh- that familiar with what Shame you're- on you. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm getting there. No worries. Um, no, I have grackles. That's kind of like my first start into oils was with grackles, so I always feel like I need to have a 
a presence of uh, Grackle there. I mean, it's kind of an expectation. Like when bands go on tour, they play their hits. That's my hits. Right. Um, and I've delved into more still life, which is um, bandanas, kind of Texas iconic pieces. And then now I'm working on Tumbleweeds, which after the success that I just recently had, uh, will probably become a series as well. Tumbleweeds <laughs> are great because I remember my dad bringing one home from the El Paso area. Yeah. He was like, hey. That's my life, yes. He got on the airplane with it. They were like, what's this? He goes, is it tumbleweed? Bringing it home for my kids. I know. There's something weird about them um, as they just kind of travel around. And I, I didn't realize how many people have a story or a feeling or how they would resonate until I started painting them. And then I've gotten messages. And I mean, those were the first things that sold. There's this... I guess, a mystery of this tumbleweed and how it travels and where it goes. And I don't know, they're pretty cool. I saw some living ones that uh, I was just in El Paso and I said, oh, those are gonna be wonderful one day when they're plopped up from the uh, earth and tumbling around. So yeah, kind of grew up with them. When I first started, I didn't really understand that growing up in El Paso had such a influence on me until I created a large body of work and was bringing in things that I knew. You know, I was putting grackles and luchador masks and mariachi hats. And and I thought, wow, this this living on a border town, it, it's everything that I love. And I really do work with nostalgia, a feeling of nostalgia. And so that's where the tumbleweeds, this is just my past, what I know. And I am completely floored about how people have taken to it, you know, and and really kind of connected with it. I the, the that area has such a, you know, the West. It's the beginning of the West, I guess, with Texas. With yeah, it's as West as you can as go. As West as you can go, but then you get into the New Mexican Arizona vibe, which there. is very different. Yeah, yeah, it's weird. You go into Las Cruces, and you know their chilies are different. There, I mean, just immediately there's a different flavor, and I. I love New Mexico too. I'm, growing up, I would put like a full tank of gas in my car, drive halfway into New Mexico, see what I could see because it's just absolutely stunning, and then drive back. <laughs> just to get a visual reference, just to take pictures or anything. No, no, this was in high school. I didn't even. I wasn't painting. I wasn't really doing anything. I, I was involved in art, but no, just to have an open road and see something different. And of course, you could fill up your tank with like six dollars back then. Yeah. With the with grackles being sort of your your hit or what you're known for, what is the genesis of that? I took a painting class, an oil painting class. I was afraid of using oils. I always wanted to use oils, but um, I was told that they were very dangerous and they could self-combust. And so I didn't want to just try it. I wanted to learn how to properly take care of things so that my house wouldn't burn down. And we had to have a a subject matter. And for some reason, a bird blowing a bubble came into my head. And I decided that's what I was going to work on for that particular week. And I just Googled bird and that's what came up. And once I painted it, someone said, oh, well, that's a great grackle. I'm like, grackle? What's a grackle? And I've been living here this whole time. And so I kind of watched them. And as soon as I finished that one particular painting, I thought, well, what else can a grackle do? And they are so funny when you watch them 
They're awkward and yet graceful. They're loud, obnoxious, and and pushy. I thought they were just hilarious to watch and the perfect bird to put different headpieces on. And in the show, I have a tribute to Willie and Elvis and and Stevie Ray Vaughan, and those birds loved loved getting up in those costumes. <laughs> What's the process on painting those oh, birds I, like that? Most paintings I see in my head before they're finished. And my goal is just to get whatever I see matching on the on the paper. But yeah, no, I no, I end up putting everything on big uh, towels, like the paper towel rolls, and I put all the stuff on there, and then I have to, you know, kind of add it to a grackle in my head. Or on Photoshop, actually, a lot of times, okay. just to see how things work. For the composition. Yes. And then sort of go yes. from there. Yes. Because, you know, grackles have such a beautiful voice <laughs> that uh, I thought I might change that perspective a bit and just pay tributes to the singers and, you know, that I love. You know, there's Willie. Who doesn't love Willie? Stevie Ray Vaughan. I mean, you just can't get better guitarist than that. And then Elvis, which... He sang one of our my wedding songs, so he, he goes back for me as well. So there's always like personal aspects. With so, and that's just one part of the show, though, right? It's a, that's three, and I have grackles holding tumbleweeds, carrying tumbleweeds to make their nest, and then, uh, like I said, tumbleweeds just on their own. That mystique of a tumbleweed, kind of an avoided background, very concentrated on the tumbleweed itself. And then bandanas from various uh, places. We've got I've got one in the show from Sendero Company, who is uh, I think I think they're in Waco. But just amazing bandanas. So kind of taking this old school idea of what a bandana is and, and making it contemporary. I have also got a lot of vintage bandanas. My collection is huge now. There was a show I wanted to get into called Icon, and I was thinking what I felt was kind of like an iconic idea, and it was the old school red bandana. I painted that, did not get into the show, but once that was finished, of course, then it led to my obsession with them. To take something flat and make it look three-dimensional is a unique process, and to, to see all the shades of one color and having to go into the shadows and the highlights and what's most fascinating, if I'm painting a red or a blue or a black bandana, that particular color that I feel it is, is probably the least painted color in that bandana. There are so many different shades that everything else is represented, it seems, more than that actual color that you might think it is in your head. The actual color itself is probably the least painted, which yeah. I, I think is pretty cool. It is. It's, it's, so yeah. your eyes doing all the blending. Your eyes are doing it, Yeah. That, I can see how that would be endlessly fascinating. Yeah, and you can go insane because you have to edit yourself. Like, well, how far am I going to take this? Because even within those colors are colors and colors. And I mean, there are people that are super hyper-realist and I can't do that. I've got to limit myself or I'm just going to get lost down this rabbit hole of color. How do you know when you're done? I think you'd get sick of it. <laughs> That's for me personally. I like, I can't do this one more day. It, I think it's done. Yeah, it's like, like I'm either going to be done or I'm going to smash this to the ground. But other people have different processes. <laughs> <laughs> that's how you know, folks. <laughs> I am sick of looking at it. That's when it's done. Is there a theme for the show? I mean, no. Mm -mm. It's just latest works kind of. Latest thing. works. Uh, my, I kind of had a theme 
for me in particular, I, I got this one bandana. It's a striped black and white bandana. And as soon as I saw that, I knew I wanted a wall of muted black and white striking, very uh, graphic bandanas. So I waited and I collected other black and white bandanas to pair with that and then chose my color. So I wanted everything to look a little cohesive, you know, and then the birds are holding the tumbleweeds and then there's a transition into the birds. So for me, there it's not so much of a theme as a look that I wanted to convey on that wall. I like to, I guess I like to inject a bit of humor in most of my stuff and that I'm kind of lacking that in this one. There, there's little touches of humor, but it's not as obvious as a lot of my other work. You know, less colorful, you know, less audacious. <laughs> Is it more of a of a uh, desaturated type of Definitely color? desaturated, yes. That's a good way to put it. Um, just more subtle. That's fascinating. I, I am fascinated with like, what would make a painter want to desaturate, you know? But it's the same thing with any, any tone. Yes, you know? I think it's like a pendulum. I mean, I was afraid of color for a very, very long time. Um, I kind of like being in the corner myself. I don't want attention. And I felt like I was portraying that in my work as well. And then I went the opposite way where I just explored color. And now maybe the pendulum is, you know, I guess you get bored of something. And so I'm going back and kind of exploring that. Maybe I'll end up somewhere in the middle or maybe I'll just keep swinging. I have no idea. Christy Stallop's work will be up at Commerce Gallery through the end of the month. So be sure to check it out. So the phone rings, David, the White House, and I'm like, oh, crap, Big Jim wants money. And I'm like, okay, Jim, what's up? And he goes, excuse me? It was a lady. I said, I'm sorry, ma'am. I thought you were a friend that was calling from the White House. And he says, excuse me, but are you David Torres? David A. Torres? I said, yes, ma'am. All right, we're calling to verify the value of the president's hat to put in the archives, and we need to verify. And I said, yes, ma'am. And I told her the price and everything. And she goes, okay. And then she goes, excuse me, but you said Jim, and I need to make sure there's nothing left unturned on this conversation. You thought I was Big Jim. What does that mean? And she goes, is there something I need to know of? Because this is a president. And I'm like, well, let me tell you, street lingo, friends of ours call the White House. It really means the penitentiary. And she goes, so you're saying street lingo out there is called the White House really means sometimes the penitentiary? And I say, yeah, because the building's painted white. And she goes, hey, hey, hey. well, okay, well, I just needed to verify and clear the air because the whole group family of Texas Hatters has security clearance and y'all have all been checked out. Come on down to Texas Hatters where we top the best. Austin Music Love is putting out a local music discovery letter. They will send out the new songs that are released daily by local artists in the Central Texas area, including Lockhart. Plus, you can personalize your newsletter by genre. Over 1,500 local artists are signed up to have their music distributed through the newsletter, and there are about 50 new releases per week across all genres. Some of the Lockhart artists included are Augustin Ramirez, Melissa Engelman, Telenovela, R.F. Shannon, Richard Watson, and Parker Chapin. 
Find out more at austinmusiclove.com. This is Annalisa Hinterkleiden with this week's episode of Tricks in the Kitchen. Today's topic is, is hating vegans morally justifiable? The answer, as was quoted so often by my dear old friend Jackie Kennedy Onassis, is, oh God, yes. Let's start with that lovely guy who brought us World War II, one Adolf Hitler. For those of you old enough to remember WW2, you hardly need to be reminded that all it took was one fanatic vegetarian in a country known for its high-quality not worse, to really screw up the cooking as they put it in the language of the Chilcotin tribe of Northwest British Columbia. It was said that hiding out in his bunker during the last days of the war, the nervous little finger pointer had his own personal chef lined up against a wall and shot over an incident involving cankered Brussels sprouts. It wasn't entirely the fault of the veggies. I've been told by those who know that the little goose stepper's marriage wasn't working. Just think, if the man had only nibbled on the occasional bratwurst when he was just an odd-looking tyke suited up in lederhosen, the worst part of Germany's historical reputation might have remained the creation of Riesling wine. This is Annalisa Hinterkleiden reminding you to please tune in next week for Tricks in the Kitchen when we answer the question, why did Julia Child have such a problem with pounded round steak? Just a reminder that our lineup is featured on our Instagram page and daily, and our story is called The Roundup. If you want to know what's going on in town tonight, check out 78644podcast on Instagram. It's also the place to find out when our next episode is out. We want to remind folks about our 78644 Friends program. What are 78644 Friends? Well, they are super fans who believe that supporting musicians goes beyond just attending shows. It's about ensuring their return by tipping the band. To address the disparity musicians face in earning a living in today's world, we've initiated a program where you can make a monthly donation of $5 or more, and guess what? We will give 100% of your contribution back to the musicians who have played on our podcast. That's right, 100%. Supporting your favorite, supporting your favorite musicians has never been easier. Head over to 78644podcast.com, click the subscribe button, and sign up for $5 or more a month. It's the cost of just a couple of tacos. As a token of our gratitude, you'll be invited to exclusive 78644 hangs every month where exciting perks will await you. Past perks have included paying your cover at shows or offering a complimentary drink or gifting a swag bag to you. And that's not all. As a subscriber, you will receive a special link to a password protected playlist featuring all the original music from our show. This includes unreleased songs captured at the Troubadour Image and Sound Studio, and it's an opportunity to enjoy exclusive tracks all in one place. So don't miss out on the fun. Sign up today and secure your spot on the invite list and support the incredible musicians who bring their talent to our podcast. And remember, always tip the band. Your contribution makes a real difference in their lives. It's time for 78644 News. Thursday, August 17th at the Pearl. Third Thursday, open mic with Michael James Trio hosting 7 to 9 p.m. Old Pal will have A.J. Mack. Lockhart Arts and Crafts will have Rock Bottom String Band from 8 to 10 p.m. Friday, August 18th, it's Courthouse Nights with Heartburn, Talking Heads cover band from 7 to 10 on the square. The Pearl will have Tony Taylor from 8 to 10 p.m. 
Saturday, August 19th, Old Pal will have Roy Heinrich from 9.30 to 11.30 p.m. Lockhart Arts and Craft will have the Teal Waves Window Shop, Doors at 8 p.m., $10 cover. Good Things will present Comedian Avery Moore at 7 p.m., $25 cover. Sunday, August 20th, The Pearl, Sunday Blues Matinee with W.C. Clark from 3 to 5 p.m. Lodoff Fannies, Ethan Ford and Special Guest, 1 to 3 p.m., Wednesday, August 23rd, The Pearl, Whiskey Wednesdays with Chris Lancaster, 7 to 9 p.m. Thursday, August 24th, Old Pal will have Mary Charlotte from 7 to 9 p.m. Lockhart Arts and Crafts will have Trivia Night, 7 to 8 p.m. August 25th, The Pearl will have Yacht Rock with San Antonio's RDO Band, 8 to 10 p.m. Old Pal will have Jamie Kruger from 9.30 to 11.30 p.m. Lockhart Arts and Crafts will be open mic night that night from 8 to 11.55 p.m. Saturday, August 26th, Old Pal will have Corey Cross, 9.30 to 11.30 p.m. Lodoff Fannies will have Jams with Jenny from 7.30 to 9.30 p.m. Sunday, August 27th, The Pearl will have Sunday Blues Matinee with W.C. Clark. That's 3 to 5 p.m. Old Pal will have Graham Wilkinson's Brunch. That's 12 to 2 p.m. Lodoff Fannies will have Ethan Ford and Special Guest. 1 to 3 p.m. Wednesday, August 30th, the Pearl will have Ashley Monocle and Kevin Deranger from 7 to 9 p.m. Thursday, August 31st, Old Pal will have John Mutchler, 7 to 9 p.m. And that's it for 78644 News. Heartburn. Talking Heads tribute band pays tribute to Talking Heads and David Byrne, who fused pop, funk, art, rock, and African rhythms into perhaps the most adventurous, danceable, and timeless music to emerge from the new wave movement. Heartburn picks up the torch where the seminal concert stopped making sense left off, breathing new life into the classics and pushing the grooves into uncharted sonic territory. What began as an informal hoot night has evolved into a must-see touring act, featuring some of Austin, Texas's most talented musicians. The members of Heartburn joined me by Zoom, and we got a chance to catch up with what they're doing and their process, and also talking about coming down to play Courthouse Nights here in Lockhart. Uh, yeah, my name's Josh Pearson. Uh, I'm a founding member of Heartburn from back from 2011 or 2010, I think. I don't know, 2011. And I also play lead guitar, mainly lead guitar, backup vocals. Yeah, I'm Evan Bozarth, uh, also a founding member of Heartburn. Uh, me and Josh and my brother Dustin, for lack of a title, we've kind of co-managed this band since the beginning. Josh does the booking, and so it's sort of a, <clears throat> a labor of love that we've had uh, going, uh, playing this Talking Heads music. But uh, yeah, I played bass as well in the band. And my name is Darren Murphy. I'm the newest member of Heartburn, and I sing lead and play rhythm guitar. That's great. Well, thank you for taking time to join us here on on uh, the show and talk a little bit about Heartburn. Um, I uh, I want to get started. I, I the, my first introduction to Heartburn was on a birthday. My wife had taken me to the parish, 
and and I didn't know I was going to be taken there. And I can't, I, I'm nearsighted. So it, I walked in, it was a big crowd, and you guys were playing, I don't know, once in a lifetime or something like that. And I, you had the outfits on, and I thought, is this, I couldn't tell the difference between you guys and the, and talking heads. I was like, for a split second, I thought, this is talking heads? Like, did they like get back together? I was totally <laughs> freaking out. I was so, uh, I think this was like maybe six, seven years ago. Was but, it December? It may have been. No, it was, it was, it was in February. It was in okay. February. But anyway, that, that was my introduction. And so I'm a huge Talking Heads fan and uh, David Bird fan as well. So um, it's with great affection that, uh, that I talk to anybody that enjoys the same stuff. But I want to know, how did you... How did this come together? It's like I, I read on the website that it was started as sort of like a hoot night kind of thing. But would you mind to talk about it a bit? Yeah, our good friend Sham Jones, who is also a founder of this band, it was his idea to do this hoot night, right, Evan? It was his idea. Yeah, it was. And at Momos, at Momos, he put oh, yeah. together where it was three of our local bands at the time: a Moving Matter, original jam band that I was founder of, uh, the Trim which is another uh, local original band that Evan was a founder of and Jabarvi, another local kind of jam band, original thing. And we did those three bands. There might've been another band or two in there. Um, yeah. There were a couple more bands in there. Yeah. And so we each band played a few talking head songs. And at the end of the night, we did like a super group where a bunch of members from all the bands got together and just played uh, talking head stuff. And that was where it was like really magical but the response to this thing, Momo sold out at like 400 people, you know, just like an easy sellout. And so it, the year was coming around, we're like, let's do it again the next year. And we decided to do it at Antone's where it was like close to Momo's capacity is 650. And we decided to do just the super group, you know, no individual band, not a hoot night where we practiced as a super group. And that was really the formation of what Heartburn would become. And Evan made this awesome poster. I have it hanging over here. Let me show you this. It's awesome poster. Um, oh, yeah, that's right cool. here. Yeah. Did you and, paint that? Is that hand painted? Uh, it's a screen print. Oh, it's and nice. Did it in my, so if you look it in at my it, dad's backyard. That's fantastic. So if you look at it, it's got talking heads and big, right? Yeah. You know, and then a little hoot night underneath it. So like tons of people, they thought it was the talking heads. And so the Antones is just getting calls off the hook, like day of a show. Or day of the show. <laughs> Did you not? There was a line of 200 people wrapped around the corner of the building to get in the building that night. It was sold well, out, did, 650 so people. I did a version. I did a version of that poster that was like six feet tall, and we hung it on the on the street outside Antones. This is when Antones was on Fifth Street, West yeah. Fifth, where that was in Lavaca, I guess. And it, it, so it was like a six foot tall poster, and it said "Talking Heads" about two or three feet high. And then in the rest of the stuff, and and people would drive by so fast, all they saw was talking heads, and they'd be like, "What? What? What did I just see?" And then they'd you know try to figure out what the hell was going on. That is fantastic. And of course, you yeah. guys are with them. Um, with with What's that, I'm sorry. Yeah, with high, highly illegal. I'll, I'll admit that was not you know not not necessarily the best marketing tactics as far as like uh, you know being ethical about things like that. We try to to avoid 
going overboard on that type of stuff, but at least that time it was kind of hilarious. How I think it's performance art. Yeah, I think I think in the in Talking Heads would think that was great. Yeah. Yeah, I, well, I'm I'm sure when you're on the, on the line out by Mama's, you can hear the, from the outside patio you guys playing. They're like, yeah, because <laughs> you guys, I'm telling you, when I heard you, I've heard you several times live, and you guys really bring it. It is, it is a, I mean, it's like, stop making sense, but you carry it on. So that that's what's happening now a little bit, right? It started with stop making sense that that set, and then expanding. Yeah, it's always kind of been based more or less on the stop making sense era of the band and kind of the the magic of that movie that documentary that concert film uh we kind of based a lot of the band's style and the way we perform those songs kind of feeling like it's coming like if even if there's other songs that happen in the set we kind of i like to think they all kind of would come from that same set that same show if the show were longer and maybe it was two or three sets long yeah yeah that's that's fascinating. Um, I mean, that to me, that was the best side of Talking Heads. When I first saw that DVD, I'd always heard them on the radio, and I was like, yeah, I, I connect with their music. I like it. I always liked their videos. David Byrne, they'd always make creative videos, and that was the era of videos on TV. But when I saw that Stop Making Sense DVD, it just painted the Talking Heads in a completely different light to me. And I was like, "These, this is unbelievable. These guys are so good. And then to get to recreate that so many years later has been a you know a real joy for us and the talking heads it's it's connects with so many people which has been so surprising you know some of the bands you do some of the tribute bands you do like you get some people with talking heads just right away you know selling 500 600 tickets every time in austin and so after that anton show we're like man we have something special here i don't even know if it was how good the band was even though i think the band is great i just think that there's a huge void for people wanting to see and hear talking heads music live and since then, it's just continued to blossom. Yeah, yeah, they're one of the two, maybe one or two or three artists you can think of that sort of cross over between sort of the art rock, punk rock worlds and the pop world. And even so it, we bring this sort of jam band kind of element to the mix. So, so, And definitely that music resonates with jam band people, even if it isn't jam band music. So it kind of it bridges the gap between all these scenes and all these types of people and it brings them all together. And I, I really can't think of many other artists that do that. So it was kind of a perfect thing to do. Yeah. I, it, you, that's a good description. And it's always, an, it's music that's happy too. It makes you laugh. It makes it fun. Right. And, you know, I think that's one of the secrets of what they did um, is, doing something that was satirical, but also left over from the disco period where people could just kind of dance, you know, it, was right. yeah. it wasn't just rock and roll with your fist in the air. It was more about a scene, you know, and dancing. Yeah. Time, so, and yeah. it was, it was also the, uh, you know, David Byrne, I think was attempting to do, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, black music. He was attempting to adopt a lot of the African music uh, elements and all this stuff. But the way that they regurgitated that in their nerdy white boy way kind of created this new thing, this other thing that kind of like you couldn't have necessarily predicted. I think a lot of people probably are, are would you could say they did that. You know, the British, British invasion was 
was uh, white English people trying to do black blues music and, and things like that. So so it's happened before, but uh, it, this was happening in another era and in, in another way. They kind of, in a way, it opened the door for other, you know, suburban white kids to try to do the same thing. And, and the way it comes out is sort of it's, it creates it just creates more. I think more room to interpret all of the all of the American music and and black music and and African sounds and all this stuff. It all it all becomes okay to be interpreted and not necessarily come out sounding authentic, but it it comes out sounding different and new, and that's cool. No, absolutely. Yeah. David Burns said basically the same thing when he was here in Austin during South by Southwest in about two thousand one, and and he had said that Talking Heads had started out trying to sound like Casey in the Sunshine Band uh-huh. and ended up missing by a mile. Uh, and so in the process created this, this whole new thing. But that was this, the sound that he was trying to, that he had been chasing and it continued to be for years and years. And you could see, kind of see the way the band progresses even at, you know, after the Brian Eno period, when they finally get around to the Naked album, he had figured out exactly how to capture the sound that he'd been looking for back in 1977. Yeah, but that's a great record too. Their heads yeah. going, what is this? And it's a lot of percussion, you know, it's like so much percussion on that. And then right. you went from a four piece yeah. art rock band to like stop making sense where they added the funk guys. And with yeah. you had this huge, you know, percussion element, both Latin and African, you know, which it's just like, I love that stuff all day. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I would also say that in addition to the stop making sense sort of big, big influence on on the way we put on this show, you, you also have to look a couple tours back to when they had Adrian Ballou in the band and this sort of crazy wild stunt guitar, lead guitar element that, the, that they added that he brought to the band. So I think Josh kind of brings that flavor to uh, to uh, our shows, too, which is kind of a cool thing to add into the mix. So we're, we're picking and plucking all these little elements from all the eras of the band and and then putting it together with our own personal tastes and sensibilities and the way that things inevitably come out because, you know, like like you said, even David Byrne trying to imitate someone else, it's going to come out the way it comes out. So what you're hearing in Artburn is just the way we try, we might try to nail it and, it and we might nail certain elements and then other elements just come outside and the way we sound. and It all creates this... Uh, stew and that's the way the band sounds so it's uh in some ways it's very much uh true to the talking heads in certain eras but in other ways it's true to who we are as people and we kind of just let we try to embrace that where we where where it happens yeah absolutely that's that's a great way to approach it true to us as musicians uh you know 30 percent, maybe more probably 30 percent, is complete improv up there it's not rehearsed it's just whatever comes in the moment off the cuff and that is where I think the most unique aspect of this band versus any other Talking Heads tribute band out there, even versus the Talking, you know, the you know, Talking Heads or David Byrne, it's completely unique to that. And I think people resonate with that. They tap in and they're like, "Man, I love where this goes." You know, not knowing and knowing that it's going to be a different show every time. Yeah. Have you gotten to any communication with David Byrne or any of the guys from Talking Heads? Do you know Chris or anybody? No. No, I'm not first. really. We've, you I, know, reached out, I, I reached out to Chris and Tina to try to see if they would be interested in flying here and playing a show with us. I never got a response back. I reached out to 
Adrian Ballou's management team. Um, but I, I later found out that Adrian and Jerry were both creating this new Remain in Light type of band. They were doing like a Remain in Light tour. And oh. we just got to see them when they came through here about a month ago. And it was, yeah. I loved it. I thought it was so good. Seeing Adrian Ballou just rip it with them was awesome. Yeah. Um, so I understand maybe why he didn't respond because they got that going on. But, you know, we would love to have them understand what we're up to and maybe be a part of it in any capacity. It would be a dream come true. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Sure. Um, so when So, Darren, you're, you've taken over the mantle of lead singer for for it have you been a, a a talking heads fan for a long time is this something that that's that you've been wanting to do or is it is it different for you as a singer you know it, it came to me as, as quite a surprise I'd, i've always been a fan of talking heads since i first saw them on saturday night live in the late 70s but um but it really had only been on the surface you know i i i Back in the 80s, I was a DJ in clubs, and so I was spinning a lot of their music then. And I got to know some of the D, the B or the the deep cuts, you know. Um, but it wasn't until I joined this band that I, I really got challenged to dig even deeper into their catalog. There was a ton of music that I didn't know that I had to uh, to cram on to get ready for this first show we did, which was September the 10th of uh, of last year. But previously, I've been, for the past 20 years, I've had this band called Skyrocket. Um, that's okay. with my sister, Trish, and, uh, and five other guys. We were all in the original scene in Austin. We all had albums out, and, and we just kind of came together to play kitschy 70s stuff, 70s and 80s stuff. And, and then we ended up monetizing it. And... Uh, right around, at, I think it was about 10 years ago, I first heard of Heartburn uh, because I, I was doing a project with Evan and his brother, Dustin. Uh, we had a, a little David Bowie project that was going for a while. And that with Chris Dye? Yes. Yeah. yeah. yeah he's a good friend of mine, too. <laughs> that band was awesome. Yes. Uh, That's awesome. Chris was on the last episode, actually. Uh, yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. So I, and so I had uh, heard of Heartburn then, but I had never actually seen them. And then out of the blue, I got an email from Josh about uh, uh, taking over as lead singer, and and I didn't know that it was something I could do at the time. But uh, I, I felt like I was at least confident enough to give it a shot, and and just see you know do give my best delivery and and see what the band thought of it, and it ended up working out. That's great. It was um, a miracle. Yeah, it 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 was kind of a miracle. Yeah, <laughs> we it, the the other singer and the and the other founder of the band, Andy Harn. I should shout him out for being uh, an amazing person, but also amazing musician and probably the best musician in the band uh, all these years. And and he uh, so it kind of took a stick step back to do family things and focus on his career. And uh, we were basically at a crossroads where we we're like, uh, you know, we don't really want to. Uh, go on a talent hunt and we don't necessarily think we'll find someone to replace Andy. Um, and then, uh, it, I, I can't remember who was it tricky or who's, who mentioned Darren the first time we know, Casey's. we knew that 
Let's Casey see. said somebody had mentioned to him, and he had mentioned to me. Yeah, and like yeah, like Darren said, me and Dustin knew, and we'd worked with Darren, and we knew how talented a person he was, and and we had kind of been following his career and his stuff was with Skyrocket, and we knew about his working with uh, Christopher Cross and all these things. So we knew he was a great musician, but we hadn't necessarily experienced him as a frontman. But we kind of had this inkling of you know what, if anybody's talented enough to kind of go there i think this guy might be willing might be uh, uh the guy to try and but we also didn't think he would necessarily be interested and uh it was kind of a shot in the dark and uh it, it really worked out from the first rehearsal we kind of everyone knew that it was going to work out <laughs> that's good yeah, yeah so i was reaching out to so many people artists everywhere all across the country uh, the other talking heads leads people lead people like some of them stopped playing you know and so i reached out to them this one dude charlie otto i think his name is in chicago he's amazing he stopped doing it to do his original thing and there's so many of them replied back oh, i'm flattered can't do it don't want to do it some replied back like "Ooh, i don't think i can hang with it you know thanks for thinking of me but i can't hang seriously like 30 people 20 to 30 people that i'd ask oh and wow then darren he Facebook messaged me back and he's like, I'm interested. And immediately, like, let's get on a phone call. And he's like, I'm up. I'll, you know, this is a really exciting challenge for me because I've never gotten to do sort of this front person role as a musician in my career. And I would really love that challenge. I'm like, dude, let's go. And like all of us, you know, knew he was super talented, but you never know until you're in that rehearsal room, like how it's going to gel, how professional they're going to be and take this seriously. And this guy, like, dude, the first note he sings, you see all the band members heads perk up. And we're like, okay, this thing might be still on. Like it was such a breath of fresh air to, uh, you know, find you and have you part of the team, man. Thank you. Awesome. you know, um, I, the story I heard was there was a sax player named Marcus Caldwell that um, had somebody had come to him and he said, call Darren Murphy, call him right now. He can do this. And uh, I actually ran into Marcus last week and I had an opportunity to thank him for, uh, for the recommendation. He that's might have been the one who called Casey because Casey's like, dude, check out Darren Murphy. It's like, oh, yeah, 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 that's it. That's it. Okay, full credit to Marcus Caldwell. <laughs> Let the record show. <laughs> Thanks, Marcus. Um, I, I, we're really looking forward to having you out at Courthouse Nights here in Lockhart. And uh, so that, I just, uh, I've enjoyed talking to you. This, I just wanted to cover some basics with, with you guys about. You know what's what what where it's been and where it's where it is now, and we can't wait to see you guys. So is there anything you want to add before we jump off? No, no, we're excited too. We've been hearing about the Lockhart uh, nights, yeah. and and uh, and it's quite a scene going on over there. Our friend uh, Will uh, has been hyping it up, and and uh, everyone who goes there, uh, we've had multiple people tell us we should play there. And I'm glad it finally is working out and we're just, we're pumped to do it. Okay. Well, we're looking yeah. forward to having you. If we can also promote our big next upcoming Austin show on September 15th is a very special night for us. It's at Emo's beautiful venue and it's the 40th anniversary on that day, September 15th, 1983 of the Huey Lewis album release of the Huey Lewis album sports. And so, you know, we had this idea like, should we maybe cover that album, you know? And we talked the band into doing it. And this is the first time Harper has ever sort of pivoted and done something like this. And, it's, you know, Huey Lewis is one of our favorite artists growing up. So yeah. we're so excited for that. So if we can, you know, push that, plug Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Yeah, fantastic. 
at emo. But are you doing sports as Talking Heads? Because that would. <laughs> I think that's sort of the essence. I, we, we're talking about there will be some mashup moments. Yes, probably there will be some moments where we kind of collide the, the worlds uh, in some weird cosmic way. So look out for that. But but I don't know. It's we're taking it. Uh, we're feeling it out. We'll see how how it actually comes out. Right? How, we'll we'll attempt to do it in a way that will and it will actually come out in whatever way it comes out. <laughs> Might end up being Huey Lewis as Talking Heads.
to thank our sponsors, Texas Hatters, Wella Foods, Thunderbird Bars, The Little Alamo Airbnb, Two Wishes Ranch Events, and Birdie House Airbnb. In-kind sponsors are Printing Solutions, Williams Island, Courthouse Nights, The Rock House Airbnb, Gaslight Baker Theater, and Crystal Glaze Photography. Our show, 78644, is produced by Kate Collins, recorded at Troubadour Image and Sound, edited by myself, Stephen Collins, with Danny Manning, in-studio performance by Bear Ryan, other music by the Go Gorillas, and Heartburn, playing music by Talking Heads. Thank you to our contributor, Jason Williams. Our show is available on Spotify, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Amazon, Radio Public, and everywhere else where podcasts are streamed. Thanks for listening. Thank you.